Hello, everyone. It's Waterproof Records time. That's right. Dip that record in the water. It will not be ruined. That's the name. That's what we're, what we're about. You know, the name of this show, it, uh, it's uh, one of my catchphrases is unsinkable tunes from the past, present, and future. I always liked that. Unsinkable tunes. Um, but we are going to keep this trucking along. It's been fun because I, I feel like I've been able to do a lot more podcasts recently for you guys. And uh, we're going to keep this ball rolling. And yet again, we go back to the early 90s. Like I said in the last episode about Pearl Jam 10, we're hitting some of the iconic, big, groundbreaking albums. Um, obviously, we're going to be opening up the door to more obscure albums, rare pieces of music and things along the way, especially while we have guests. But right now, we're going to talk about a controversial artist, Rage Against the Machine, self-titled. Here we go. Things are going to change, Yep, it's time to tackle the ever so controversial Rage Against the Machine. I mean, a lot of us love this band, but boy, oh boy, do they stir up some hot button topics online, on the internets, on the interwebs. And thankfully, you know, back when when they were hitting the scene, it was like you didn't have social media. You didn't have crazy opinions. You just watched them on TV and you're like, wow, that's crazy. These guys are, you know, talking about stuff that I, I'm just not even aware of. But let's just start right out of the gate. Who Rage Against the Machine is and what they're about. If you're not familiar, they're a a hybrid of hip hop and metal and funk and um, there's a lot of different kind of styles that come together to create something that is truly and uniquely its own. And Rage Against the Machine is Zach De La Rocha and Tom Morello and Tim Camiford and Brad Wilk. And those are the four guys. And they've been the original uh, lineup since the very beginning. And they're pretty much California, you know, Los Angeles band. I mean, I believe that Brad is originally from Oregon. And I think that Tom was born born in New York, and then I think he grew up in Libertyville, Illinois. Um, but this band really came together in Southern California. Um, I think that um, Tim and Zach met in Irvine in that area. And so these guys are a diverse gathering of, of, of friends that were in bands and whatnot and how they came together. Basically, is Tom Morello was in a band called Lockup. And lockups breaking apart, and he, you know he's he's lived in in uh, in L.A. for a short while, lived in this area for a short while, and he he is a Harvard graduate. I don't know if you guys knew that, but uh, Tom Morello is a Harvard graduate, so very smart smart fella. Um, it got it in political science, but he moves out here to pursue a career in music. He's he's feeling a little unhirable. There's even uh, at the time I think he worked as a as a exotic dancer for ladies' parties and stuff. He just basically said, you know. He got basically down to his uh, boxer shorts, but that was one way he got got money along the way. Um, but he's in a band called Lockup, and his drummer, non- uh, John Knox, says, hey, I know these guys I think that you should uh, I think you should jam with. And it's Zach De La Rocha and Tim, Timmy. And uh, 
The, he tells them to get together because those guys are in a band that, I mean, Zach De La Roche's band, which was called, oh my gosh, Inside Out, was also breaking up at the time. So they're just bringing them together. Then they get Brad Wilk, this drummer, and then voila, we have Rage Against the Machine. And that band name comes from a song and album idea that Zach De La Rocha had already in mind for his band Inside Out. But then that band didn't, you know, didn't last. And so he just basically said, I think it really represents what we're trying to do here. And boy, does it ever rage against the machine. Right. And the cover of their debut album, which which released on November 3rd, 1992, Election Day. Yes. November 3rd, 1992. What a fitting time for that album to be dropped by Epic, uh, which is the label that they, they got signed to. Um that was the election that Bill Clinton won. Uh, so this is the early 90s, and uh, we're, we're leaving out of the Bush era and moving on to the Clinton era. Um, but this is a very interesting time in the world. Uh, we didn't have a lot of voices like Rage Against the Machine, actually none at all at the time. And uh, these guys get together. They, they make this demo tape. Uh, they record 12 songs. They're selling it for five bucks at their live shows in Southern California. There's this amazing YouTube video um, that you can find. And it's it says, like, the first time Rage Against the Machine is playing live. It's in October of 1991. And they're playing um, uh, Cal State Northridge. They're playing, like, outside. And it's really amazing because you can hear just how phenomenal these guys are, how tight they are. They're such good, good musicians. And you're watching just these people walk by on this college campus and people are stopping every now and then. And you can occasionally see, you know, somebody standing in front and watching the stage and just, you can see them kind of like looking around like, are you guys noticing these guys up here just crushing it on this college campus quad? <laughs> it's kind of incredible to see it. I hi- highly recommend you check it out. So they made this demo tape. They're selling it for five bucks. Um, I think they ended up selling about five thousand of those uh, tapes before they finally got you know the record deal. And if you have one, they're supposed to be worth a, a good amount um, online, a couple hundred dollars at least if you have the original one. But it was this cassette tape. It had a picture of like the the Wall Street um, Wall Street. What are those like the, the forums you know for your for your stocks stock exchange stuff? And had like a uh, match on the front. So they have that, and then they they basically get a record deal, and they go in, and they record this album. And while they're in the studio laying down this track, these tracks for these songs, um, they're having a hard time because up until this point, they've only ever played live together, and so they were having a hard time when they were laying down the tracks because they were going, uh, you know, focus on this hi hat here, focus on this drum fill, this guitar part. It just didn't feel very, very organic. And so what they decided to do was they invited some of their friends. They set it up like a concert in this recording studio. And they basically played a set for their friends. And in that session, they got like all the the basic backing tracks for this album that they needed because that's how they played. So they were never going to be able to just sit there in the studio and like, okay, you go over there and record your bass lines. You go over here and it's got to be all tight. They just had to have that energy. Um, I've never gotten a chance to see Rage Against the Machine live. I'd love to, um, but uh, their energy, if you watch their live performances, it's incredible. They're outstanding. Um, and they really were pioneering this sound that was so uniquely theirs because this political-driven stuff 
it exist, existed before. I have to say that and specify that because, man, oh, man, people got crazy angry at me on the Nirvana episode that I was hinting that Nirvana somehow were, were responsible for changing sex, drugs, and rock and roll into this you know, much more dire outlook. And I, I said on that episode, if you listened, I said, no, there were other bands that came before, but that's when it hit the mainstream. So I want to stop for a second and say that there were other bands, the, of course, The Clash, uh, Bad Brains, Fugazi, uh, The Dead Kennedys, b- back in the 70s with Crass, and there's, there's, there's bands that were incorporating political messages, you know, incendiary ideas in their music, you know, kind of uh, an anarchy rise up against, you know, socialism. All these things were coming out in music before Rage Against the Machine, but we hadn't heard this sound um, quite like theirs. You know, we, we, this was definitely the time where we're seeing a lot more rap and rock crossovers. The same year that Rage Against the Machine's debut album comes out is like when Ice-T is in body count. You know, we're beginning to see these ideas. But the, the political in music and hip-hop from Public Enemy and NWA and a lot of these punk bands had existed before. But it was just the perfect storm that this was happening this time and coming forward and really changing things. And, um, you know, Tom Morello has such a unique sound. And so even if you don't know much about Rage Against the Machine, hopefully you know about what a, um, you know, unbelievable trend-setting, stylistic, amazing guitar player that Tom Morello is. You know, he has such a unique flair with the way that he plays his guitar like a DJ um, on this record and every record afterwards. All the sounds and crazy things you're hearing, those aren't synth or digital sounds. Those are made from his guitar. They He he has figured out how to do, you know, what sounds like record scratches and siren squeals and cries and, you know, these we these, just these sounds. You know, that was definitely one of the first things that I remember hearing and being like, what is going on with that guy's guitar? Um, and Tom Morello also is famously known for um, a single coil pickup in in heavier music. This is going to get kind of nerdy, but this is a guitarist thing. Um, most heavy musicians, you know, guys that um, grew up listening to the heavier stuff, the Metallica's, the Slayer, is you know, when you have that heavier sound, they usually choose humbuckers, you know, two coil. And the reason for that is it's a little bit more warm. And then when you have two coil, there's always the signal, and the other one helps cancel out the signal so there's less noise. Single coil, famously Stratocasters, and a lot of the guitarists that you know that have Stratocasters, it's a little bit more tinny. Um, There's a lot more potential for the, the noise from the pickup, but that's a very signature sound. But in heavy music, that wasn't very common. And Tom Morello having a background in, you know, um, uh, Led Zeppelin and Sabbath and some of these other bands that came before, he kind of brought this single coil, noisy guitar with that with that tinnier sound to it to heavier music. And so that was uniquely his as well. Tom Morello is a really cool, interesting guy who has um, a lot of a lot of intellect and he's very smart, well read, and he does stuff on Sirius XM with his mom, Mary Morello. And, um, you know, she's a white woman and his father was Kenyan, I believe. And he grew up in Illinois and experienced a ton of racism. 
And Zach De La Rocha also experienced a ton of racism. He once referred to Irvine, I believe, as the race, most racist city in the United States from his childhood experience. Um, a lot of these guys were dealing with growing up in a time where there was an enormous amount of in-your-face racism, and that really spoke into their experience. And this is where we're going to get into some interesting stuff, because I am going to talk about the tracks and the albums but you want to know what's so fascinating to me. And I, I don't talk about politics. I don't do it. I talk about music. But one of my first successful TikToks was my Rage Against the Machine TikTok. It's the one where I'm listening to Freedom for the first time. And I basically, once he gets to the part where he's shouting Freedom, I like, you know, fall to the ground because I'm just overwhelmed with like how powerful it is. And that's absolutely how it was for this white kid growing up in 1992, Tulsa, Oklahoma. I'm watching this music video where they're talking about a, a, a wrongly imprisoned Native American activist named Leonard Peltier. And they have this video where they're talking about how he's being imprisoned unjustly. And I'm seeing this black and white footage and he's saying freedom. And I'm really being introduced to these ideas that I'm like, wow, uh, you know, can't trust the system and you can't trust the man. You can't trust, you know, the government. You can't trust the police and you can't trust. These are all these things that, like I said, NWA, Public Enemy, these other artists are talking about the we can't trust the system. And that's what Rage Against the Machine is. Their, their cover of their first album is a Buddhist monk, a Pulitzer Prize winning photo of a Buddhist monk self-immolating in protest in Vietnam. That is a real picture of a guy burning himself alive. And they chose that because they were saying, we're willing to commit 100%, no matter what the cost, to what our beliefs are, like this picture. And I mean, to be a young kid and see that cover, I was like, holy shit, these guys don't fuck around. Now, this is where it gets political. When I made that TikTok I can't even begin to tell you how many comments of a certain side of the political agenda said this. They used to rage against the machine. Now they rage for the machine. Let me tell you something. I saw that comment, oh, I don't know, 10,000 times. It was literally like this echo, like a group of people had gone to a party and they all said, this is going to be real clever. Or they listened to some guy on a, on another podcast or another show. They heard him say, they used to rage against the machine. Now they rage for the machine. And they all came in trying to be so damn clever. Oh yeah, they rage against the machine and now they raised for it. And that had to do with their vaccine stance. And what that was, was during the pandemic, when they started playing live again, they made it required to have vaccines. And so, oh boy, oh boy, people got bent out of shape about that. Now they just support the government. And I'm, I'm going to try not to harp on this too much. I'm going to try. But it's really hard for me to not just want to shake these people by the shoulders and say, I disagree strongly that Wanting to follow the science and protect the safety of people means that you're a government shill or that you're just, you know, oh, I'm just doing what the man tells me to do. That is not even in the same ballpark. OK, there was enough data and science and evidence at the time to suggest that if you passed this on, it could pass on to somebody else and make them severely ill or kill them, 
kill their relatives and family members and make this situation worse. And to look out for humankind and as a band to say, hey, we're going to play live again, but we don't feel comfortable if we're the cause of more people getting sick. You can come back to me and say, okay, well, there was other data that suggested that wasn't true or this is what I believe politically and I believe it was all a hoax. I don't give a shit. They're artists and they're allowed to take a stance that they think protects their audience and people that are coming to see them. That's their right. It doesn't mean that they are literally just changed their stance. And then another thing that I'm going to say, and then I promise I'll get back to the music, but is there hypocrisy that might happen with this band as they've gotten more successful? Maybe. I'm not going to say they're blameless. I'm not going to say that um, being really successful and being millionaires and, and talented artists that grew and got bigger and bigger and bigger, that maybe sometimes that they're the, the very thing that they're you know getting money for might go against some of their ideals. But I'll say this, and I usually only have this stance that I can take, which is, I grew up in a religious household, as you guys know. You you know this about me. I've talked about it many times. And if you grow up in a, a mindset of faith, I don't care what your religion is, but you grow up in a mindset of faith, most faiths believe, I believe there's a divine being, a God. I believe there's an afterlife. And most, especially Christians, want to share that information, and they're very passionate about it. They want to share it. They want to share the truth with others, right? I don't, but they want to. So what happens when those people, no matter what race or background, grow up and become successful and they become very wealthy? Do Are they not allowed to talk about the things that they're passionate about anymore? If somebody believes in something to the core of their being and they become a billionaire, they're still allowed to talk about that they believe that there is an afterlife. They want you to have to be loved. They they worry about your soul, right? That's acceptable. Sure, we have televangelists that we think are are misers and stealing from people, but everybody, even if they become successful, is still allowed to stand for what they believe in. So you, here you have a band of guys, especially um, the experience of Tom Morello and Zach De La Rocha, who are speaking from a place of um, racism, bigotry oppression. They witnessed it firsthand. They experienced it. So that's always going to be with them. They're always going to not trust a system that would breed bigotry, racism, oppression. You know, they would, they would always seek to stop that. They would always want to speak out against that about corporate greed and against these messages, because that is in the very core of who they are as people. So you can come along and you can say, oh, well, I find it ironic that these guys who are millionaires are telling me about corporate greed or corruption in America or whatnot. But that's no matter how successful their career led them, they're never going to stop wanting to tell you that the system is dangerous and that it um, that it breeds kind of this cyclical problem of favoring a certain class of people, the upper class, the the one percent or you know, that's just always going to be in their in their minds and in their mouths. It always will be. You shouldn't be surprised by that. And I'm definitely not surprised by that. And I think that's fine. I think that's fine. If somebody 
um, was molested or they dealt with violence at a young age, their entire life they would speak out against it. No matter how rich, no matter how successful they are, they would always speak out against where they saw oppression, racism, bigotry, sexism, people being oppressed. So that's my very passionate opinion is one, you come at me and you say, rage doesn't rage against the machine, they rage for the machine. I disagree. I disagree with you. I think that these guys are trying to continue what they've set out to do from the very beginning. Had they been successful at doing it? Absolutely. Have they gotten uh, fame and money and opportunity? Did they work for a record label? And that might be problematic. Sure. Is there some level of hypocrisy in here? Yes. But did Rage Against the Machine leave their mark on the world of music by opening people's eyes to injustice? Did they stand for what they believed in the majority of the time? Absolutely. These guys famously shut down Wall Street by playing outside. These guys famously stood naked in front of a crowd during Lollapalooza to protest and got escorted off by police. These guys got kicked off of Saturday Night Live for hanging American flags upside down because Steve Forbes was the guest. These guys always... They toured with U2 in the 90s and took every ounce that they got paid and gave it to charities. They did this over and over again. They constantly put their efforts and energies into stuff to make sure that people were taken care of, looked after, that they stood for people's rights. They donated to organizations, outspoken. They did They did marches. You know what I mean? So anyway, I got a little, I got a little hot on that one. I think because I've been holding on to this for a year. Been holding on to a year for Rage Against the Machine. I make a video on freedom and people are coming at me. I had a guy make a video in response to me. Let me tell you this. I had a guy make a video in response to me. A duet on TikTok is where they can take your video and then they can film something, right? Or they can tag you in it so you can see it. So this guy tags me in a video and he shows himself burning Rage Against the Machine stuff in his yard. And he says, hey, Jacob Givens, you and Rage and against the machine can expletive here, whatever, fucking suck my dick and whatever it is. He says this horrible shit to me while he's burning these records. And you know what I said in response? I said, hey, man, you know, I'm a dad with kids who works at a job and just loves to talk about music, right? I wrote that back. I said, you know, I'm just like a regular Everyday guy who goes to work and loves his kids and listens to music. And his response like three days later was, okay. I mean, come on. He, this guy treated me like I, was, <laughs> like I was out there just completely ruining the world for him because I made a video about how I loved a band. You know what I mean? Like why was, fuck, are you kidding me? So this is the first this is the first time I've had a chance to talk about this band that as a teenager I'm learning about oh holy shit there's police brutality this album was recorded during the Rodney King this is the backlash of the Rodney King riots you know there was a lot of stuff going on right then that would that would happen and also I'm a white kid what the fuck do I know about racism in these neighborhoods that these guys were growing up in so I wanted to just listen and learn so my recommendation before I get back to the album is to just say, maybe, 
maybe, just maybe, every now and then a message is heard so well that the person becomes successful because of it. And that happened with these guys, I believe. All right. I'll get back to the album. Are you guys angry with me? I probably lost so many people because you thought like, oh, Jacob doesn't like to rock the boat. But you know what I do when you when you tag me in videos burning albums and saying, look at what you can. <laughs> anyway, uh, I'm, I'm doing the hillbilly voice. That's probably not fair. I have no idea if that's how this guy talked, but sure made me feel that way. And I, I, uh, I grew up around some of that kind of stuff anyway in Oklahoma. All right. So this album is very memorable because the riffs are incredibly different from what I was hearing at the time. Tom Morello would do these single note riffs. You know, a lot of times people were doing bar chords, but he was doing these riffs where he's just playing, you know, one note at a time, which is very unique, as well as the DJ style. And right out of the gate, this thing opens up with a song called Bomb Track. And it just builds and builds and builds and goes. And this album is explosive. I remember the first time I actually heard the CD because I heard, I saw the Freedom video, blew me away, totally, for, you know, blew my mind just the intensity of it. But I went over to my friend's house and it was my buddy named Brian and he had the long boxes. I don't know if any of you guys are old enough to remember this, but CDs used to come in these long boxes. They would sell you the CD, but they'd be coming in a long cardboard box. That the CD was inside. So it was this elongated version of the CD in a box. And so they're kind of cool. So he had them hanging up on his wall um, in a row, like all the long boxes that the CDs would come in. Um, and uh, I saw that up there. That's where I saw that picture. And I remember listening, and it was just so intense. Everything about this album is intense. You cannot relax listening to this record. Not at all. Um, and then there, the, the second song on the album, Killing in the Name, that is the one they're the most well-known for in the world. They are uh, hands down in their entire career, albums, live shows. Killing in the Name of is, is Killing in the Name, the name of the song is the most well-known, and of course it is, because he says, fuck you, I won't do what you tell me 16 times, and then wraps it up with a nice motherfucker. So nice little 17 times of uh, of the F-bomb there at the end of the song. Pretty memorable. But it was the record label's idea to release that as a single, um, because they knew there's no censoring these guys, and that's going to be their appeal. You know, we're going we're gonna to put that out. And just basically, there's not going to be like a, a a version where we bleep it out or whatever. They just they just were like, this is. I mean, they edited out that ending, but it was like they knew that the controversy would draw people in. And it was also the record label's idea to release "Freedom" as a single because they thought this is the only al- this is the only song on the album that doesn't have a curse word in it. Um, but he says, "Bring that shit in right there." They had to convince them that shit in was an Aztec word for freedom. Uh, this is true. And they, they said, no, he's saying shit in. It's an Aztec word. It's, it's freedom. Bring that freedom. <laughs> so that's what they did, which I think is just great. Um, but this song famously, I don't know if you guys have ever heard the story, but there was a British DJ who accidentally played it on the BBC like top 100 or whatever he played the full version on the radio and everybody was just kind of speechless but their popularity overseas outside the united states was much bigger 
um, because they didn't have as many censorship rules in, in Europe and Japan, and they were able to get away with a lot more than they were here. There was a lot of censorship here. Um, but their controversy and their their unwillingness to kind of censor themselves is what really, really took hold on this band. You know, like I mentioned, they go on Saturday Night Live and they're only allowed to play one song because of, of the way that they behaved. And um, that was the appeal spe- specifically for me as a kid, just seeing these people that were so um, proud to stand up what they believed in, that it inspired me. And I think that, I mean, obviously you just heard me go on for, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes about how angry (laughs) you hadn't heard that before on the show, how angry I could get at people just kind of constantly being critical. Um, and I'm not saying you can't be critical. I'm not saying you can't be critical. I just, maybe we just, just disagree. Um, but this album, you, you have Take the Power Back, Settle for Nothing, which is a ballad, these really cool sounds. This album also, no, uh, Wake Up, became the ending song for the end of The Matrix in 1999. So whenever I hear the song Wake Up off this record, I think of that movie for sure. Um, but I, you know, it's not like this isn't one of those albums where I can really sit down and go track by track and just say, and then there was this and then there was that. More or less, the whole thing, start to finish, is is one hell of a record. You know, it it brings you in. You can hear these guys moving so succinctly and so tightly together. Zach De La Rocha's way of writing these lyrics and his high pitch rap was so signature for their style. Um, you know, Tim Comerford and the way that he blends with the bass and and guitars of this band. I mean, the drums and the guitars of this band. They're just all really well matched for each other. This band broke up in the year 2000 um, after being together for nine years. And actually, I should fix that sentence. Zach left the band in 2000. It wasn't, um, they didn't break up because Tom, Tim, and um, Brad have never stopped playing together, ever. They just went on to make Audio Slave. And then Prophets of Rage and whatnot. So the only variable that's kind of come and gone from their lives has been Zach. And, you know, of the research that I've done, I've seen, it just sounds like that guy somewhere along the way was like, look, the communication and decision-making process in this band it has failed us. And we're just not on the same page. So it's time for me to step out. So he let them know. They said, okay, best of luck with you. We're going to continue on doing our thing. And at the time, they may have gone on. They they very well were like willing to go on as Rage Against the Machine. It was even around that time in 2000 that they were already talking to um, the guys from, you know, Chuck D. And uh, what's the other guy's name? Beaver Hill. Yeah. Anyway, Prophets of Rage guys. They were already talking about working on those projects with them. And Zach just, you know, always he did his side projects one day as a lion um, with the guy from Mars Volta, and then he did a couple other things here and there. But um, Zach was the one who I think kind of would make himself available and then disappear again. Um, whereas those guys, you know, the other three, Audio Slave was was a huge success with Chris Cornell for quite quite a long time as well. But um, they got together in '91, pretty much ended in 2000, so it was a good nine year run. And this album. Um, Evil Empire was the second follow-up, and we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about that album, but one thing I did want to share is I do remember at the time, the years that would pass between something releasing, 
I'm sure you guys remember this as well. It seemed like an eternity. Like I look at it now and I'm like, it was only three and a half years from one of the next, you know, almost four years. But back then it would be like, you know, back to the future would come out. And then it felt like it felt literally like your entire lifetime until back to the future two came out. And it, it, it was like, it took so long for these things to come together. And I look at them now and I'm like, Oh, three and a half years is hardly any time at all. But at the time it was like, the first album comes out and then you're like, when are they going to drop the next one? When are we going to have this next album? And near that last year before the the evil empire comes out, everybody's like, I guess we're never going to hear from Rage Against the Machine again. I guess that was it. I guess they're broken up. And then it would come. And then you'd be like, wow, it's amazing. Um, but, you know, I think I spent a lot of time uh, getting angry on this episode. So, you know, Josh, uh, my my producer, hunting season. He's he's. I'm gonna have to come af- after this episode and go out there and be like, was that okay? Should I should I delete this episode? <laughs> he's giving me, he's giving me the the cancel sign from the from the window. I love it. Like, no, don't air it. I know it is one of those things that that when you do get passionate and you feel something so deeply in your heart, you're like, I gotta say something. Um, but I, I want to see if there's anything else that I wanted to talk about before I got it here. Oh my God, Josh, I forgot to really read the believe limited thing at the top of the episode. So should I just do it now? And then, and then I can find a way to lay it in early on. Maybe I should just do that. I can edit around it. Um, oh, that's a good idea. That's a good idea. Good call. All right. Read it at the end. Um, I wanted to see if there was anything else that I could say before we get out of here. I think that's pretty much it. Um, I uh, I I love this record. I love Evil Empire, Battle of Los Angeles. I got into it a little bit. I liked the cover album by Rage. Um, I'm wondering if they they will come out with. Um, I'm wondering if they'll come out with a fifth album. You know, they are touring again. I know there's also issues that people have with what the ticket prices are for Rage. Um, playing live right now because I know they're very, very expensive and people are like, well, they're against the corporate greed and all that stuff. And I mean, I, I think that, uh, you know, could their t- ticket prices be less? Probably. Um, there's just a lot of things that go on to putting on live shows. You know, man, I don't know. I, I, I'm sure I'm sure most artists would love to make their concert tickets be 50 bucks and whatnot and, and make it easy for everybody. I don't know what goes into that. And so I, if Rage Against Machine, if you guys hear this, I, I would say, hey, I think that maybe you should consider making your ticket prices a little less. But then again, I'd be willing to pay whatever to see you guys play. Um, but they're they're touring right now. They're playing. There's been some online clips of um, Zach De La Rocha just recently. Uh, I think he got, did he fall off the stage or he got tackled or something? And so he, no, no, no. He, Zach hurt his ankle during a show. And so he had to sit down. But then just recently, Tom got tackled accidentally by the security guard and got like knocked off the stage during a show. That's been trending everywhere as well. But um, these guys are incredible musicians, incredible artists. I stand with a lot of the things that they think and feel politically. Um, I, oftentimes know that uh, I don't know much about anything with my privilege and the way that I've grown up, but I want to learn more. Um, the sentence that was the takeaway from the TikTok that I made for, for Rage Against the Machine was, I'm angry, but I'm learning. And I think that that's all you can do is I'm learning. And so if you've got some pretty strong opinions and you want to come after me and say, hey, a lot of the stuff that you said on the podcast um, I don't think you're 
well-informed about this, or you should hear this aspect, or maybe you didn't know that they were doing this. Hey, I, I'm open to that conversation if it's, if it's done in such a way that you, we could hear each other. Um, but I want to learn and I want to know more. And the truth is there's a lot of oppression in the world. There's a lot of people in power manipulating the situations. And me personally, I don't think having people be safe um, at a concert is, is saying that you're just doing what the government tells you. I think that there's a lot more consideration into that decision and I, I support it, but that's just me personally. And so if I lost you, then I lost you. But check out Rage Against the Machine, 1992. Came out uh, right on election day, November 3rd. Um, the record producer of this, I forgot what his name is. It's neither here nor there. But let's wrap up the show, shall we? I listened to my friend do a podcast earlier, and I just realized that a lot of times I don't give you guys a lot of the scoop on what would be helpful to me. Um by all means, if you have listened to me on iTunes, I sure could use some comments and some stars on there. If you want to write a review and say what you think of the show, um, if you want to tell your friends and tell them to support and check out the show and say, hey, you should be listening to Waterproof Records, that would be a huge help. You can find me on TikTok at the Jacob Givens, and I'm everywhere else, just pretty much Jacob Givens. I have a YouTube channel where these videos air. I usually share clips of them, but you can check out the full episodes on my YouTube, which is just Jacob Givens. You can find me on there. Um, that would be a huge help uh, to help grow this whole thing. But then again, after this episode, maybe you're like, I'm over this guy. He's canceled. I don't know. But before we get out of here, let's, re- let's read our Believe Limited um, blurb, shall we? Today's episode is recorded at Believe Limited in Silver Lake, California. Believe specializes in entertainment that affects change and is responsible for various forms of content, including feature films, documentaries, and podcasts, much like this one. You can check out their work at BelieveLTD.com. Believe Limited. We do special things. Thank you guys for joining me. Waterproof Records. Uh, I, I had fun. We'll talk soon. Things are going to change, I feel it. Waterproof records. Waterproof.